Hello. This is a demonstration of a talking picture. Notice, it is a picture of me and I am talking. Hello and welcome to season four of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. We're back and I come with some exciting news. The movies talk. Yes, we've finally come to the era of synchronized soundtracks, along with all the implications of such for good and for ill. This season, we'll delve into the changing technological and artistic landscape of Hollywood, starting right now with a discussion about Hollywood cinematography as a transition from the silent era into the sound era with Patrick Keating. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. everyone. We're here with Patrick Keating. Patrick, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? I'm a professor in the Department of Communication at Trinity University in San Antonio, and I teach film studies, media studies, and video production. I also do write about the history of cinematography, and I've written a book about lighting called Hollywood Lighting from the Silent Era to Film Noir. And I've also written a book called The Dynamic Frame Camera Movement in Classical Hollywood. Well, welcome to the show. I think you're one of the rare folks who multiple guests have said, you got to get this guy on your show. Oh, thank you for having me. We're going to spend today mostly talking about camera movement and scene construction. Basically, how did the ideas behind camera movement evolve? Because one of the things that struck me about your book, The Dynamic Frame, is how insistent you are on reframing the kind of camera movement rhetoric from technique on forward to ideas. And that was one of the most rewarding things about it. And so I think that, though, to get to those ideas, grounding ourselves in kind of what happened historically is important. And there's this kind of, I'd say, popular conception of how camera movement went in, let's say, early mid 20th century. And it's as follows. At first, there was no movement, you know, God created Earth, there was no movement or whatever. And then slowly throughout the silent era, there was more movement, especially due to Murnau. And then mm -hmm. sound came, movement stopped. If you've seen Babylon, there's a whole scene about this. And then slowly we figured it out. And sometime around the making of Jaws, we have a lot of movement again. And that is, you know, a popular conception of how camera movement went. And I, you know, I, I may be betraying myself by saying it wasn't quite like that. But how did especially the early history of camera movement evolve? What happened in the 1910s, 20s and 30s throughout that period of silent cinema and the transition to sound to camera movement? How did ideas and technique inform one another? Okay, yeah. So camera movement appeared in films relatively early on, even during the cinema of attractions period. One popular type of movie was uh, called a, like a phantom voyage, where you would place the camera on top of, let's say, a train, and then the train might just be moving around space. So there's one from, I think, 1903 called the Georgetown Loop, mm -hmm. which is they put the camera on a train that's in Colorado, and it's just a movie about where the camera goes. I'll mention in passing, this particular train track still exists, and I have been on the train, <laughs> and I did it just to relive this bit of cinematic history. But then with the cinema of narrative integration, 
I think you have less camera movement during the teens that filmmakers are more reliant on decoupage to guide our attention through the space. And there were definitely some filmmakers who tried out camera movement. And you can see some films from the mid-19-teens that have camera movement, sometimes inspired by some Italian epics of the period. But by the 1920s, most filmmakers who were doing dramas weren't really moving the camera much. They were relying on editing to take us through the scene. Now, that doesn't mean Hollywood filmmakers didn't move the camera. It kind of varied by genre. And in the 20s, you can actually find, prior to Murnau, some spectacular moving camera shots in Hollywood films. Oftentimes, they're in comedies because the moving camera is used for gags and trick-type shots. So what Murnau did, and I do give Murnau great credit for this, was really inspire more creative ways of thinking about how to move the camera and also to help tell the story, to help make the story more dramatic and engaging. And he does this in his 1924 film, The Last Laugh, which got a lot of attention from filmmakers around the world. And that helped secure Murnau a contract with the Fox Studios. So he came to the U.S. and then made Sunrise, which even though you know it wasn't a smash hit film, it also had tremendous attention and respect from filmmakers. So in the late 1920s, with Sunrise and with some other filmmakers, you do have some really tremendous camera movement. And then you have the transition to sound. And as you say, the transition to sound, it's often the effect can be exaggerated. It's often said that it just stopped camera movement right away. And maybe that's true briefly, but you can start seeing camera movement again as early as 1929. And the decisive film here was Broadway, which Universal Studios made. And they built this enormous crane so that Paul Feyos could do some really quite spectacular shots. And I actually think that by 1932, the camera is tremendously mobile again. There are several films from 1932 that start off with a really spectacular camera shot to the point that some people started wondering if this was excessive or necessary. From one perspective, you could say that filmmakers, you know, pulled back from the extremes of 1932. But I wouldn't want to overstress that point. I think if you look at any film from 1939 and compare it to a typical film from 1927, even one that we think of as having a lot of camera movement. The one from 1939 will have more camera movement. It's just we're sort of more used to it by this point. You know, so a shot that just seems normal might have astonished us a decade earlier. Even by the time of Murnau and later the sound era and the great explosion of camera movement in the early 30s, there had already been trends that had died out. I mean, your book mentions a tracking shot craze in the mid 1910s mm -hmm. that was then later pushed back upon. And that's probably a good way to get into that debate, right? The whole, when do we choose to move the camera? What framework of thought do we use to govern that? What sort of debates were going on starting in, I guess, the mid-1910s about that among cinematographers and directors and producers? Yeah. In my book, I try to propose two frameworks that helped shape the debates. And the phrase I use is parallels and purposes. And what I mean by that is filmmakers can draw parallels between the camera and something else. And oftentimes that something else is going to be human perception. And so then they'll say, well, how should we move the camera? We should move the camera so that it more closely resembles how a person might be perceiving the scene. Mm -hmm. So perhaps the movement shouldn't fly up into the air. The movement should be closer to the ground or it should be at a pace that a human might take. 
that also will guide some sense of story in the sense, what might a person be looking at? You know, they would say, well, a person might be curious about some important story point, and maybe they would step closer to that story point. So perhaps camera movement should mimic what a person would do. And I should say this type of thinking is very common among Hollywood filmmakers and Hollywood filmmaker theorists. You also find it in other traditions as well. In the Soviet Union, Pudovkin explains his montage aesthetic according to a kind of person-like analogy. And the argument there is that editing actually better approximates human perception. So that's one sort of cluster of thought, the question of should the camera be mimicking human perception? And then another cluster of thought, which I call just under the heading of purposes, is really a kind of functional logic. If we're going to move the camera, it shouldn't just be to show off. It should be for a purpose. And the most common purpose is going to be how are we going to tell the story? And here I think storytelling could be something as simple as just drawing our attention to some important plot point. But it could also be drawing some metaphorical parallel. It could be linking us more closely to one particular character's perceptions, or it could be revealing things that characters don't know. So I like to think of storytelling as always involving a process of unfolding. So you can reveal something, you can conceal something, you can emphasize something, or you can understate something, present a dramatic event without those extra hit of emphasis. And I think those four kinds of storytelling logic helped guide the use of camera movement. Yeah, it's interesting how this kind of reframes it from the kind of almost intuitive first way we might see the debate of, for example, late 1910s, and especially during the mid-1920s, you had this kind of almost two quote-unquote sides to a debate. You know, you have basically move the camera more or move the camera less. But what you're putting forward here is that oftentimes those two impulses can arise from the same basic framework of thought, which is this idea of, is the camera analogous to something? Or is the camera a means to a end? You call these analog versus end claims, I think, specifically in the book. And so, so, for example, if you are someone who is an analogous thinker, you are thinking, OK, the camera takes the point of view of a certain observer that behaves in a certain way. And that can, however, mean a highly active camera in yes. certain contexts mm -hmm. or a static camera in other contexts, for example. That's right. I think the analogy can actually be turned to a number of different aesthetics and also it can serve a bunch of different functional purposes. So I do draw the distinction between like analogical thinking and means end thinking. I I think that usually means end thinking wins out. <laughs> you often might propose an analogy because it'll help you make your argument in favor of a technique that you might be predisposed to like anyways. One example I give from early 30s, one of the German directors who came to Hollywood named Eric Scherrell made an argument that we should move the camera a lot more. And the reason we should move the camera a lot more is because it is going to be much closer to human perception, because that's what people do. We move around and we get close up and look at things. And roughly the same period, James Wong Howe is making the same analogy with human perception to make the case we should move the camera less, that, that humans don't actually just mm -hmm. jump around. You know, our attention shifts very rapidly and editing actually better approximates this. I should mention that this particular tension matters maps onto another kind of industrial or institutional tension at the time, which is there were at least some directors who really enjoyed moving the camera and really enjoyed experimenting with the camera. And there were 
certainly many cinematographers who thought that this was just putting an extra burden on the camera crew. Mm. They didn't think it added very much. And it took them away from lighting, which was actually where they thought they could make their biggest contribution. It doesn't always line up like this, but it often lined up like this, that certain directors would be championing more elaborate camera movement and cinematographers would be saying, no, we need to actually pull back on this and only move the camera when it's essential to the story. The idea of a fictional versus functional point of view, this really threw me for a loop because it maps so well onto what we might think of, for example, with lighting, where, for example, in lighting, you have the terms diegetic and non-diegetic, right? And generally, every diegetic source, though, those aren't two different camps, right? Those are two different states that a light can be both or one or the other. Like if I have a lamp and I'm in a Steven Soderbergh movie, then that's all that's lighting me. Then that's purely a diegetic source. But if I'm in virtually any other cinematographer's movie, there will be, you know, a off-screen fiction. So that lamp is both diegetic and non-diegetic at the same time. Mm -hmm. And you make the same point here where a camera movement, you use that great example of the point of view shot of the murderer from the lodger. In this case, the point of view is fictional, right? We are in the fictional person's head, but the functional aspects of the dolly inform the fictional character. Mm -hmm. How does that all map onto the idea of this analog versus functionalism? Because I feel some similarities there. I think there is some similarities. It's chapter two of the book is like an initial introduction of these ideas. And then I ended up writing chapter five kind of a few years later. I was revisiting them, but maybe from the perspective of the 1940s rather than from the perspective of the early 1930s. And I do introduce that fictional functional distinction with lighting as an example, because I actually think it works really well with lighting, that something can be both. Like clearly a cinematographer who prefers to use practical source lamps is also thinking about the functions of lighting. Mm -hmm. They're really thinking about both. They're like, what is the light like in the story world? But they're also going to be shaping the light's sources in the story world. Yeah, the lamp isn't there by coincidence, right? Yes. And it maps sort of partly onto camera movement. And the reason why it only maps partly is because in your typical movie, the camera is not part of the fictional world. So you can have, <laughs> you know, a whole scene where we might be asking, well, why is the camera doing that? Those questions are largely function-based questions. You know, unless it's like a mock documentary, we don't expect there to actually be like a camera in the world. That said, filmmakers frequently did say, well, what would it be like if at least the movement of the camera were in the fictional world? And that could take the form of a point of view shot, as it does in the example from The Lodger. But it also might take the form of shots that I call all semi-subjective. And those are shots where the camera is moving in ways that maybe evoke the emotions of the character. And they're not literally point of view shots because frequently these are shots that are looking at the character. So clearly we're outside the character's head. But maybe the camera is moving very quickly and the character is moving quickly or the character's emotions are moving quickly. So in that case, we are sort of seeing that there's some affinity between the camera's movements and the character's experience. And that might be another way of saying that analogical reasoning is coming into play of like, you know, here's a character who's surprised or who's excited. You know, how do we represent that? 
A good example of that that's coming up in the ostensibly upcoming season is the moment in The Merry Widow where the camera, and you actually bring this up in your book, which I was very happy to see because it's one of my favorite camera movements ever, where we start in Maurice Chevier, aka Danilo's hotel room in this Parisian hotel, and we crane out, you know, it's kind of a repeat of the trot from Shovel in Paradise, but a bit more exuberant. We crane out from the window and go all the way down past a few other windows to Janet McDonald's window, and then she carries us past it. It's almost like the musical exuberance of each character carries us through the story. And this is the most thrilling thing. And of course, it ends on the punchline of the suitors. Yeah, no, I think that's right. It expresses the exuberance of the musical number. And it's also telling us that these two characters are connected. Mm -hmm. And eventually, they'll be even more tightly connected. Yeah, so the camera's doing quite a lot of work there. I'll just make an aside that one of the things I tried to keep track of while researching the book was certain like types of shots. And so I decided that there was a type of shot that I just called the window to window shot, where the camera is looking through the window at one character and then it leaves the window, you know, travels around the building or, you know, up a floor to find another window and locate another character. On my computer, I use tagging to organize all of my clips. And so that was just one of my tags was window to window. And I found a, a good number of shots like this. And the one from The Merry Widow is, is clearly one of the best. But you'll find them even in films by lesser filmmakers. There's a variation on it in Babyface, the Barbie mm. Stan movie, where she's ascending in the company and we're seeing the camera like will travel from a window lower on this skyscraper to a different office on the skyscraper as a way of indicating how she's moving through the company. It was quite a trend of that pre-code era, right? I mean, there's not that one Dietrich movie that you mentioned. It's also in Gold Diggers in 1933. There's a fairly wonderful little sequence there. Mm hmm. It feels like, I mean, this is where I can maybe connect it to kind of the idea of technique, right? It feels like almost that window to window shot isn't an example of some sort of new high tech technique that has been invented, like no one patented the window to window shot dolly, you know, but what it does is it reframes a technique through a new conception, right? You know, it's a proper trend. A recurring theme in the book is the idea that it's not necessarily the advent of a new technology that brings on a wave of maybe movement or even non-movement. Mm -hmm. it's cinematographers, crews, especially camera operators, grips, getting more comfortable with techniques, exploring them, just getting better at using these tools, or even, you know, in the case of Citizen Kane, some radical film coming along that opens up people's minds a little. Yeah, I do think that if you look at those movies from, say, 1932, where they have a lot of incredibly elaborate camera movements, they're actually not very polished camera movements. <laughs> a lot of yeah. them do tend to be surprisingly bumpy. Maybe in some sense, when cinematographers were kind of pushing back and saying, you know, we're moving the camera too much. Effectively, it was almost kind of like buying time of just like, we need to just really have better tools and then have command of the tools. By the 1940s, they have the better tools and they have command of the tools. So cinematographers and also the dolly grips are clearly very skilled with these tools. And I would also add actors to that because I do think a lot of really good shots has to be that choreography between when the actor starts moving, when the dolly grip starts moving. The actors on some level seem to be aware of where the camera is, where the dolly is. And those two, the actor and the dolly grip, really have to coordinate with each other for it to look smooth. It's interesting because there's that paradox, right? Where between the more camera movement you have, and 
especially the more elaborate showy camera movement you have, that's an auteurist gesture, but it's also the gesture that's most reliant on having a skilled crew. Yeah, I think that's right. And that even goes back to Murnau. I think they say that Murnau would have these great ideas, but he still had to rely on a crew to figure out, you know, what is the technology that's actually going to pull that off? And then throughout the 30s, you know, it's relying on the crew. It's even relying on things like companies that were involved in producing dollies that the companies had to be like responsive to what it was that the filmmakers seemed to want to use. By the 1940s, we sort of see the studio system working at kind of peak form where all of the talent is coming together to pull off these shots. And you have not only that, but you have such an explosion of cinematographers like James Wong Howe basically creating the first seeds of what Bordwell later called chaos cinema, right? I actually watched Air Force last night because mm-hmm. your rundown of the camera's reactive nature in that so moved me to watch it. So you have simultaneously a further polishing. 1944 is also the year that Laura came out. And Laura, to me, is the most disarmingly smooth film I've ever seen. That camera movement in that looks like it's been post-stabilized. It's so perfect. Mm-hmm. And then you have cinematographers like James Wong Howe experimenting with handheld camera camera work in body and soul or the way he would get his camera operators to frustrate their camera rigs in Air Force to simulate the concussive nature of a bomb blast. James Wong Howe is such a fascinating figure because he gave a lot of interviews, you know, really over throughout his career. And he wrote articles in American Cinematographer. And on the page, I tend to think of him as one of the more vocal critics of camera movement. He was frequently saying, oh, this director made me move the camera and it just didn't seem like it was helping the story. And yet, if you sort of complement his writings with his films, you see that he also wanted to really experiment with camera movement, you know, not to show off. I think he was usually against the idea of camera movement being showy, but he was very interested in the idea of making film more real, making film more responsive to trends in still photography and trends in documentary filmmaking. And so that experimentation with those like concussive blasts affecting the camera do seem to be a part of that larger project of making the cinema more realistic. The sheer amount of experimentation James Wong did throughout the mid-century is phenomenal. I mean, then you get to something like Seconds, where it's like everyone's arguing over whether to eat bananas or apples, and James Wong Howe is like, here I am, I'm growing lab-grown meat for the first time. It feels like yeah. from a different universe. It's absurd. Seconds is really amazing, and even something like Sweet Smell of Success, mm-hmm. which doesn't really have anything like in the way of like a two or three minute long dolly shot. But what it does have are these just really energetic little pans, really energetic little dollies. And oftentimes they're coordinated quite nicely with the editing. That movie I just find so energetic. And a lot of it comes from the way that there will be a cut and then immediately the camera moves. And it might just be just like Mm -hmm. the tiniest little movement, but it adds so much energy to that movie. A lot of the kind of seemingly overtly contradictory ways that all these cinematographers see things can often be, I guess, resolved, if not fully, but partially by kind of going, okay, what framework of thought did they use? A good example of this, in your book, you recount Irving Pichel's kind of rundown of the directors he really admired, especially Lubitsch, Wells, and Ford. And he really succinctly gets at what each is doing with their camera in, I think, a more almost personal way, a more abstract way, less about, you know, going, okay, is the camera prosaically moving or not? moving or how much is good, but versus, okay, what is the actual underlying emotional framework that guides these? Yeah, it's a fascinating article that he wrote that 
I think when the article was introduced, it said that Pitchell was working on a longer book, like a book of film theory. He never completed that book. So we only have the articles Mm. that are in that one journal. He was the victim of the blacklist. He draws a parallel between Ford and um, I'm just going to quote him here. Ford, he rarely causes the camera to move, thus permitting the spectator to orient himself in a stable world. Lubitsch is a gentle guide. Let me show you what I saw, which is such a beautiful summation of the Lubitsch attitude towards the audience, especially I think his later work is so full of that, where it feels like the camera is very kindly, gently nudging you to a certain framing of the scene without seeming overbearing. As I read the Pitchell essay, yeah, he kind of clusters filmmakers into these three categories. And Ford is this representative of this more restrained or just subtle, perhaps sometimes observational approach, where Ford explicitly several times said that camera movement was overrated and directors get too caught up in trying to show off with the camera. He preferred to keep the camera relatively stationary. Pitchell was very enthusiastic about Ford's work, and he did draw this analogy with human perception, that it was more like what an observer might be experiencing. He used the phrase feasible human viewpoints. And then at the other extreme, you have someone like Orson Welles. And Pitchell says Welles's camera is just not analogized to a human at all. Wells' camera can go anywhere. It can be watching the opera and then suddenly, with the help of special effects, it's ascending through the rafters to find two of the men working in the theater who dislike the opera, who are mocking the opera. It's doing things that no human could, so human camera analogies just aren't relevant. I think for someone like Wells, the idea was that the camera was a tool that could be used, you know, in any creative way. My reading of Pitchell was that Lubitsch was in that interesting space in between where he's not quite as restrained as Ford because Lubitsch does move the camera. Lubitsch does like to make authorial commentary where it's clearly, you know, Lubitsch is making a joke with how the scene is filmed. And yet it's not this extravagant, you know, non-human machine that Wells really makes us aware of. My sense was this idea of the guide, that Lubitsch is like a narrator, is telling us the story, but is telling us the story by saying, okay, now look over here. Now notice this thing that maybe the character didn't notice, but I'm going to let you notice it because I think it offers a distinct and amusing perspective. I think the texture of the camera movements also matters here too, where, I mean, modern example for me is the texture of the Steadicam implies something about the freedom of the observer that, for example, a dolly shot doesn't. I was discussing this with Chris Bloveld years ago. We were talking about Meek's Cutoff. If you've seen that one, that's Kelly Reichardt's kind of Western. And she ended up basically firing the initial cinematographer because he insisted on shooting the long tracking shots in the desert on a Steadicam. And Chris Bloveld you know, was brought in and set dolly tracks down <laughs> hundreds of feet. I think that, you know, that feels very right because if you think of the steady cams floatiness, the texture of that movement, it affords the audience the sense of freedom of possibility, even if you don't take advantage of it. The camera could go anywhere versus a dolly is very clearly rooted. And you can feel that that does come through. You don't only have the decision of where to put the camera, but exactly the textures you apply to that movement. I can make it a little aside here about modern gimbal textures being, I have no idea what the hell to do with those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think Kelly Reichardt was absolutely right. Yes. Yeah, I think Meek's Cutoff is an exceptional movie. I also teach video production. And so we have a gimbal. I've been <laughs> teaching my students to use a gimbal. And a lot of them are actually quite good with it. I'm not good with a gimbal. I just have not mastered the feel. But it really does go to this idea of bodily feel, like the operator mm-hmm. really has to feel a connection. I just feel much more comfortable teaching a dolly. And there is something about 
the weight of a dolly. It does just feel more grounded, more connected to the space. I'm offering kind of a subjective perception. Of course, there are great uses of the Steadicam too and great uses of the gimbal as well. But on a pure level of personal taste, there's something about a smooth dolly track that I just love to see. I've been thinking a lot about this recently because I'm teaching cinematography at a couple of schools and I'm currently struggling actually with how to approach gimbals. I had it settled in my head a while ago. Now I'm kind of, I feel like I'm a grumpy old man again. Mm -hmm. Because a friend of mine introduced me to the term microparallax, which I think is a good way to describe the outcome. But what's happening with a gimbal? I apologize to the audience for my tangent here, but this whole podcast is a tangent. So, you know, deal with it. What gimbals do is that the big innovation of them is that you have a three axis robot that is designed to counteract your own movements as a human. That's never happened before. The Steadicam is a counterweighted gimbal, but it's still beholden to your decisions. A dolly completely beholden to your decisions. It's just really heavy. But a gimbal, you get this weird contrast between totally free movement on the lateral X, Y, and Z axis, right? There's no stabilization there, but there's absolute or as close as you can get stabilization on the pitch yawn roll, right? Mm -hmm. That's what three axis is. And what you get is this in my opinion, very kind of, I call it the uncanny valley of camera movement, where it has, in some ways, the fully unvarnished labor of its operator, to steal a term from Kitty Bird, is present. And in other ways, it's totally absent. And I struggle with how to deal with that because, you know, whereas with the Steadicam, there is this sensation of floating because of the mechanism of the counterweight. On a dolly, there's this sensation of very, very kind of relatable movement, maybe not relatable, but very concrete. We're moving the camera in this direction and the dolly is following what the physics would follow from that. With the gimbal, it's controlled in a way that feels off to me when I see it in most films. And I'm struggling with whether to accept that micro parallax as something that really bugs me or something where, you know, am I like one of those cinematographers in like the 40s who saw James Wong Howe doing handheld and going, oh, what's that? That's kind of my rant on gimbals. And but it gets at these ideas of textures. And I think there's a long history to this. I do think, let me just take it back to 1929, you know, that first major camera movement device after the introduction to sound was the huge Broadway crane. And then you'll see movies that are incorporating camera movement, like All Quiet on the Western Front, where those lateral dolly shots are executed with the Broadway crane. But by the middle of the 1930s, I think that the dolly had replaced the crane as like the movement device of choice. And all the studios had cranes by this point. So, you know, if they were doing a musical, they could use the crane. There were other contexts where they might use a crane. But my understanding was it wasn't like a default piece of equipment. Like if you were for a studio, you had to like request the crane because maybe they only had like one or two. Whereas if you were working on an A movie at a studio, you had a dollar. That was just a kind of regular piece of equipment that you could rely on. And I do think that part of the preference for the dolly did come down to texture, that the crane, you could execute a dolly-like maneuver with a crane, but it didn't have that attached to the ground quality that a dolly had. And I think there's maybe something of analogical reasoning going on here, that the dolly, as big and heavy as it is, is more like a person walking than a crane is, just because a crane has these superhuman powers. And then you have, I mean, I feel like I'm probably unjustifiably going to the modern era here, but then you have someone like David Fincher, who overtly wants to limit the camera's associations with the way humans move through space. He wants it to be the cleanest possible version of what he sees as an omniscient vision as possible. Yeah. And I'm sympathetic to that. I mean, I should say one underlying theme of my history of studio era camera movement is that 
even though filmmakers are routinely analogizing the camera to human perception, functional logic usually wins out. Mm -hmm. They'll analogize the camera to human perception for one scene. And then if it doesn't work for the next scene, they'll drop it for the next scene. They ended up being, you know, surprisingly flexible with that logic. I think one could draw lots of parallels here, but I often draw the parallels between, you know, how closely I want to, as a cinematographer, adhere to a camera idiom or some sort of high-minded ideal of what the camera is. Is it a person to almost method acting? Are we going for a ends-based acting approach, you could say, right? Where it's about, okay, what does the scene need? It's like the Henry Fonda thing, right? Well, I think of what my character would do and I do it. Or is it, you know, a fully top-down method approach, right? Where, I mean, I think a cinematographer who employs this quite well, it would be someone like Emmanuel Lebeshki, who, you know, in something mm -hmm. like Itumama Tambien, his camera is at all times the logic of what if you are a disembodied human walking physically through this space? But then you have, you know, most studio cinematographers who, as you say, they might almost provisional analogization, right? Where in the end, it's for an ends-based approach, but in the moment, you might analogize the camera to something. An example of a film that is what I might call super method is the film that from the 40s that you mentioned in the book that sticks entirely to a first-person point of view. Lady in the Lake. Yes. Yes. Curiously, there was a quick vogue for highly subjective camera technique coming out in 1946, 1947, and going on for a few years after that. And Lady in the Lake is sort of the most famous example of it. So the filmmaker, the actor Robert Montgomery, was adapting a Raymond Chandler novel and had the idea of, well, Raymond Chandler novels are famously written in the first person. Can we do something like that? where you are effectively the detective. And so you're discovering the clues at the same rate that the detective is discovering the clues as if you were looking through the detective's eyes. And it follows that for almost the entire film. I say almost because there are a few exceptions. There's an opening section where Montgomery himself just appears and he talks to the camera and like explains the premise <laughs> so that people don't get confused. And I think he pops up once or twice again over the course of the film. Now, many people think of Lady in the Lake as a failure. And so a kind of shorthand history is like Lady in the Lake showed that this was not really a viable option to tell a story. It kind of proved the concept wrong. I'm not certain I agree for a couple reasons. One, it is a movie that has its charms. I don't think it's an unwatchable disaster. I actually think it's kind of an amusing, enjoyable movie. And I actually think part of the problem is I just don't think the actors are very good in it. I mm. like both of the actors. I like Audrey Totter and I like Robert Montgomery, but I think both of them are much better in other movies. So I think there are other reasons why Lady in the Lake goes awry. But interestingly, Lady in the Lake is usually credited with this. And a movie that came out a little bit later called Dark Passage is often seen as an imitation of Lady in the Lake. But my understanding is that Delmer Daves had the idea first and was talking to Robert Montgomery about it. And it ended up Lady in the Lake came out first. But Delmer Daves had been working on that idea. You lay it out like this the idea between the subjective and optical experience where we can have the subjective experience of someone and not necessarily the optical experience. I mean, a good example of this is a standard shot verse shot. Standard in air quotes, everyone. Where because the camera is placed next to each character and looking a little bit off screen and the camera's placement is within spitting distance of where the characters are in relationship to each other. You get the, the subjective experience of participating in the conversation, even though it's not squarely the optical one. I use the phrase semi-subjective to try and describe those shots that are somewhat subjective, but aren't necessarily literally looking through a character's eyes. I don't know if in the book I ever like took a stand on whether I 
I thought shot reverse shot was semi-subjective or not. But I think I'm inclined to say it did. I do think there really is a difference between a shot reverse shot where let's say you're looking at profile views of the Mm -hmm. actors and a shot reverse shot where you are very close to the axis and their characters are almost looking into the camera. You know, I would say even though technically the camera is not in the character's head, it is trying to get us to be experiencing the scene differently. It's trying to get us to experience the scene as saying, well, this is what the character is seeing, or at least very close to it. So in that sense, it is pulling in more subjectivity. It also I think, depends on, for example, how far is the camera from the characters, right? Like you have, I would say, a middle of the road shot versus shot in modern cinema would be the camera is kind of near-ish to where the off-screen speaker is Mm -hmm. versus, you know, if Robert Altman shoots a shot reverse shot, it's always with the camera like 30 feet away. Yeah, yeah. You have the same framing because he's on longer lenses, but you have very different feeling. You don't feel like you're in the conversation. You feel like you're observing it like an anthropologist. It feels like you're farther away, which I always thought was interesting just because most people don't necessarily look at it and say, "Okay, that camera, clearly it's a telephoto lens. Therefore, it must be this many feet away. It's more of a kind of intuitive knowledge, I think. But I think that intuitive knowledge is there. I think we can see a shot with an Altman-esque telephoto lens and just know that the camera's far away. To quote a great film critic from Milwaukee. You might not have even noticed, but your brain did. The idea of the participatory camera, how is that distinct from all this idea of the semi-subjective camera? I think they're very similar. I think I'm very happy with the book, but I do recognize that there are some structural flaws to it. And one of the structural flaws, I think chapters five and six, I think some of those parts need to be moved around a little bit. If I had to write the book again, and thankfully I don't, but if I (laughs) did, I'd probably rework some structural things in chapters five and six. And I think one issue is that I maybe don't fully acknowledge the way chapter five, I'm kind of redoing some ideas from chapter two. All of this is to say that the semi-subjective idea and the participatory idea are very similar, but maybe I'm just pulling from different sources. I use the phrase participatory because I think I took it. I mean, I modified it a little bit, but I was inspired by a set of articles that appeared in 1934 in American Cinematographer by a camera operator named Lindsley Lane, who wrote a trio of articles that I've gone back to again and again as an on the ground Hollywood practitioner trying to propose like a theory of Hollywood cinema. And it's, I think, a multifaceted theory. I think it's sometimes it's a contradictory theory. And Lane is often quoted to the effect that he's really championing a kind of invisible observer effect where camera work should be unobtrusive so spectators can simply identify with this ideal observer watching the action. And Lane does say that, but he also says a lot more. And I think he is often more interesting when he's proposing this idea that I call the participatory camera, where the camera is moving in a way that evokes or expresses a particular character's subjective experience of the scene. And that, to me, I think is potentially quite different from the idea that camera work should be unobtrusive at all times. I think where I could maybe draw a distinction is to give the self who wrote this book, the old version used a lot of credit, is this focus on the emotionality of an imagined character, right? Where the camera is almost externalizing not just the emotions the director wants you to feel as a person, but the emotions of a specific character. I quite enjoyed this passage because it made concrete something that I feel like I do a lot, which is this is why I love doing handheld operation, because it allows me to kind of feel the rhythm of a actress performance and respond in real time, which is basically what the participatory camera is, even if you're not literally responding in real time, even if it's pre-planned, you're still reacting and externalizing to the emotions of the character. Mm -hmm. 
One of my examples of participatory camera is some of those early shots in His Girl Friday when Rosalind Russell is walking through the office and then the camera is dollying along with her. And if you didn't see the movie, you might say, well, that just sounds like standard, classical, unobtrusive style, like the camera is just following an actor. But she is moving so briskly. And the scene is about how comfortable she is in the office, how comfortable she is moving through the office. And the way that the camera keeps pace with her brisk movements through the office is intensely expressive. It's really just this wonderfully joyous moment in classical Hollywood cinema. Yeah, and I just don't think the logic of unobtrusiveness can really explain it. I think it has to be explained by the emotion that we get from the speed of the movement. I feel like I'm just bringing up The Merry Widow here. It is my favorite Lubitsch film formally. You have the great scene in Maxime's The Brothel, sorry, The Nightclub, where Daniil enters and the camera, it whip pans a couple of times, actually, in that scene around the room, you get this excitement that both Danilo and also evidently all the women who love him is feeling at that moment, right? The camera for a brief moment is not this, you know, as you say, gentle observer. It's this, oh my gosh, look here, look here. Oh, isn't this so exciting? You know, it's great to be in love, to quote Danilo. Yeah. Barry Widow has some pretty bold, expressive camera work in it. I think Trouble in Paradise has some of that as well. Mm -hmm. I also did want to talk about in the more sort of gentle guide mode, the scene from Design for Living that is actually one of my favorite examples in the book. It was one of the first examples I had that I wrote in the book. I sort of had that example in the back of my mind for much of the book. And it's a scene where Miriam Hopkins is contemplating having a relationship with Frederick March or Gary Cooper, or maybe both of them. <laughs> she clearly likes both of them. It's another one of these scenes where if you just simply were to describe it, it would seem like it's very restrained and unobtrusive. It's just kind of shot of Miriam Hopkins, shot of the two men, back to Miriam Hopkins with a few camera movements thrown in, usually when she's moving. And yet the camera, it's often moving with her movements and it's often creating these compositions that echo what the scene is about. Like she's forming this two-person grouping with Gary Cooper. Then she forms a two-person grouping with Frederick March. Then she forms this three-person grouping with all of them together. So in this way, the camera is like expressing both the logic of the scene, but also the logic of the scene from her perspective. So there's something expressive about it, even if it is just singles, two shots and following movements. It almost feels like the camera is she moves between the two men in a way and it matches her dialogue, right? You know, trying on various hats. It's almost the camera is auditioning all the different ways that these three people could form romantic couples and it settles on the three shot. Mm -hmm. It's a perfect example of that. Yeah. You say that this idea of the imaginary character and yeah, there is something about that. I generally push against sort of strongly illusionistic accounts of Hollywood films. I do do think that there's maybe on some kind of imaginary level that the film, we can see that the camera's movements are person-like in various ways and not just like a generic person, but yes, a person who is responding to the scene, mm -hmm. possibly like a character who's in the scene or possibly like someone who's wittily observing the scene, but we can recognize certain person-like qualities in the way that the camera is moving. I think that a good way to kind of tie this together with everything else we've talked about is something I've been deliberately saving. And this is something that's actually at the very beginning of your book, the idea of technique and effect. I mean, I'm sure you've read your fair share of like, especially contemporary books on cinematography made for filmmakers that tend to go like this. 
here's this technique. Here's what this technique does in no uncertain terms. A zoom implies you're looking at something. A dolly in implies realization, you know, this direct connection. And you have a very different idea of the relationship between technique and effect because there's an intermediate that you are aware of that's called context. Yeah. And I think of my book as a contribution to the historical poetics of cinema. So poetics in the sense of thinking about the principles that are guiding the construction of films, but also historical in the sense that these principles can change and these principles are very sensitive to historical contexts. And so I try to both think about maybe technological contexts, institutional contexts, and I try to think about the context of theme. Like, what is this story about? What are some of the themes that this film or this cluster of films are trying to get at? And the book maybe kind of bounces back and forth between those kinds of contexts where sometimes I'll be looking at industry practitioners and kind of working theorists within the industry. But I also try and work in a lot of close analysis where that's saying these films have meanings. And so these techniques are used to say something that's significant within a particular social context. And so with all of that, so that's kind of the larger historical poetic framework. Within that, I try to be guided from an idea that I've drawn from one of my favorite narrative theorists named Meyer Sternberg. And his term for it is the Proteus principle, which is, you know, the same technique can be put to multiple different functions, or you can accomplish the same function with multiple techniques. I said this to a friend of mine, and the friend said, meaning is bound by context, and the contexts are boundless. <laughs> you know, there are just so many different meanings or effects or functions that you can have with any given technique. With that framework in mind, I do try and say, on the one hand, filmmakers did have conventions. So they did cluster around certain solutions that seemed effective. So yes, they did sort of agree the beginning of a scene is a nice place to maybe dolly through the space to establish where it's taking place. They did generally agree dollying into a close-up of someone who's experiencing a moment of realization. That's a good idea, but it wasn't unanimous. So some filmmakers would try different ways of getting that effect. Some filmmakers would try and take that basic convention and rework it to produce something surprising. So just even within the studio system, filmmakers are inventive. They're always looking for new ways of doing something. And if we just say that a technique has one set effect, I think we miss out on that inventiveness. It's not only the moment to moment context of, you know, the story, it's also the wider context of what aesthetic framework is a filmmaker employing, right? Are they, for example, are they primarily analogizing the camera through maybe a participatory framework or are they seeing it from a more detached, quote unquote, objective viewpoint, right? In either of those cases, and those are just two arbitrary cases of infinite, the frameworks of thought can really have an impact on what, for example, a dolly in means. And this is all still within the relatively narrow bandwidth of studio films in the mid-century or in the early 20th century, you know, different films from different cultures. The question of like what a dolly in is doing in like an avant-garde film, it's asking a totally different set of questions of almost a different form. I do have a video essay about the Dalian. It takes a couple examples from the book. So it has one of the examples is from Phantom Lady, the Robert Siodmak film. And then the second example is from Sorry, Wrong Number, the Anatole Litvak directed film. And both of those are involving scenes of a woman coming to a moment of realization. So in Phantom Lady, 
uh, Ella Rain's character, is realizing the significance of a particular clue. And this is going to help her solve the crime. And then in the Sorry, Wrong Number example, Barbara Stanwyck's character realizes that she is in danger in a way that she hadn't realized before in the film. So on the one hand, we have this, it's a familiar convention. A character is realizing something and the camera dollies in. And I think a kind of shorthand explanation for it would be to say the camera is drawing our attention to the character's face, which is narratively significant. And I think that shorthand explanation is true, but I think it also misses out on the emotional texture of the two scenes that comes through the way the camera is moving. It's exceptionally quick in the Phantom Lady example, and it's exceptionally slow in the sorry wrong number example and the quickness of phantom lady is just so perfectly suited to that character at that moment that she's had this sudden realization she's actually seems to be enjoying the process of solving the crime at least in this scene she doesn't in every scene but in this scene she is or at least feels hopeful and the energy of the movement really expresses what she's feeling whereas in the barbara stanwick example her character is coming to a much delayed realization. We know that she should have realized this a long time ago. So there's just something almost punishingly slow about how this camera just moves forward just like a foot over something like 10 seconds. And that's the one where it kind of distorts her face to an unusual degree too. So it's not this like, depending on even the focal length, right? And the final distance of the camera, right? The dolly in can be this empowering thing. But with her, it illustrates her falling apart because her face is literally distorting beyond. I find amazing that that shot made it in because it's so unflattering in a way that's totally motivated. Yeah, no, it is striking because she must be so close to the camera. Whereas the one in Phantom Lady, it's a wide angle, but it's not as extreme. And the camera doesn't get quite as close. And so it doesn't have that distorting quality. So it still remains within this area where she's our sympathetic hero of the story. Is there anything else we haven't, any stones we haven't turned yet that you think are essential to understanding the subject at hand? I don't have a good paragraph off the top of my head, but I feel like there's... Something to be said about how Lubitsch's style changed both from the 20s into the 30s, but also from the 30s into the 40s. And I know William Paul's book about Lubitsch. My recollection is that he makes the case that Lubitsch found a subtler approach to style in the 1940s. And my sense was that Paul had a preference for that. And I remember him making a very good case for the subtlety of the style in the shop around the corner. And unfortunately, it's not a scene that I've introduced myself. So maybe I'm not a good person to talk about it. But, you know, just to sort of throw the example out there, my recollection is Paul makes a point of emphasizing the isolation of the Jimmy Stewart character simply by the way that he's introduced, that other characters are introduced in relation to the group, his character. There's a little more emphasis on him being a little apart from the group, but it's handled just with fairly simple following shots with simple reframes that maybe differ from the Lubitsch style circa 1932, 33, 34, where we are maybe a little bit more aware of Lubitsch as a narrator wittily presenting the story. 
You can see the direction he might have continued in with uh, especially Clooney Brown too. The camera moves, for lack of a better word, gingerly in that movie. There's a certain texture to the movement of especially old filmmakers, you know, filmmakers maybe over the age of 70, that I find really interesting. Certain filmmakers, this doesn't apply to at all, but there is a pattern I see where the camera tends to move in a less excitable way. You can really see this with Eastwood in the last 20 years of his work, but you see it in Lubitsch, even though he was only in his mid-50s at the time. With Clooney Brown, the camera is almost like so tentative. It's like the camera movement equivalent of someone whispering tenderly in your ear yeah. that's only broken a couple of times and it's usually around if you've seen the film around the character of the chemist who mm -hmm. is Clooney Brown's the suitor you don't want to end up with her and there's a very staccato dolly movement where you know she greets him in his pharmacy the camera dollies as he leaves and comes around this comically like inefficient bar and it's one of the few times in the movie that the camera really moves with verve. And it's an ironic movement, right? It's a movement showing exactly how uptight this guy is. It's such a contrast from everything he did in the early 30s, right? I mean, starting with Trouble in Paradise, but continuing on to, to he kind of took it three years off and came back kind of a changed filmmaker in the mid 30s. I wonder if Ford could be brought into this as well, just because we think of Ford as making some sort of bold statements like against camera movement. But certainly he was as influenced by Murnau as anybody in the 1920s with movies like Four Sons. And he continued to experiment with camera movement really through the 30s. It's not like he just had a one or two year period where he was under the influence of Murnau. The whole town's talking has some of these wonderful dolly shots going through the busy office. And even something that's relatively stationary, like The Grapes of Wrath, does have a couple very striking moments of camera movement. So yeah, he's another filmmaker who maybe took a mellower approach as he got older, while still having in his back pocket once or twice, let's throw in this bold camera work. Do you remember the last shot of the man who shot Liberty Valance? That I mean, literally the shot that has the end over it, the exterior. It's handheld. It's a rickety handheld shot of a train leaving frame that blew my mind because it's this, my first thought was, what, did they just, did they have to do stock? It contributes hugely to that film's sense of almost, you know, this tenuous contract of America, right? You know, it's all based on lies, et cetera. That shot's use of handheld is so disarming to me because I can't think of another willfully handheld shot he ever did outside of like Battle of Midway. So that always struck me as a particularly good example of Ford having a bit more latitude than people give him credit for. Yeah, I can't think of another handheld shot, but yeah, that's a great example. Um, or even, I mean, that film is so angry in his movement sometimes. Like you have the scene where Jimmy Stewart storms into the end when he's finally been convinced to take up the lie. And you have the great shot of the swinging doors that everyone loves, but the texture of that movement always gets me too, where it's the camera pushes in as if someone's shoving you. It's perfect. It makes me feel bad. And that's great. I'm a huge Ford fan, so I can go on for Ford for ages. But you mentioned one thing in the book that brought to mind two shots for me. I'm going to paraphrase you badly. The idea that a dolly shot and John Wayne in the same shot together don't always mean the same thing. I immediately thought of the two famous dolly shots of him, one in Stagecoach and the other in The Searchers, where in Stagecoach, you have the famous heroic shot. It scarcely needs introduction. It's the most famous character introduction shot ever. And then you have the shot in The Searchers where he is at this basically a war hospital where you have those two women who are kind of clearly in pain and he looks kind of almost at the camera and the camera dollies in as the lighting changes and the light in his eyes disappears. Exact same movement but could not be more divergent with results. Yeah, no, no. I think those are also good examples, yeah. Of, I wanted to make sure that the book, I didn't want it to just be like a catalog of, here's a technique, here's an effect. It's here's a technique and here are so many different nuances that can be had with that effect. I do have a thought. This is maybe a sort of lingering doubt in my mind. 
you know, if you take an approach, you know, that I'm calling a functional approach, and sometimes I'll call it a rhetorical functional approach, but basically like asking, you know, what is the function of this particular technique in this particular shot? You can convince yourself that something is functional when maybe it was and maybe it wasn't. So I convinced myself that in the stagecoach shot of John Wayne, that it's absolutely functional, that it goes out of focus Uh. and then goes back in focus. <laughs> but wasn't it wasn't it just a foul up? It was a mistake, right? Yeah. I mean, I would assume it was a mistake, but in the movie there's something extra magical about him just he's blurry and then suddenly he's in perfect focus. But this is a kind of risk of taking a functional approach is that there might be other explanations for a technique which could just be it really is just a mistake and that I'm just sort of trying to find other meanings. I think I do something similar when I briefly talk about rear projection. And I think my example is from Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. And we're on this train and the train is moving away from the town and the town that's moving away is clearly rear projection. And in some sense, it looks bad because rear projection usually just looks bad. But I think I tried to convince myself that there's something about it that it just sharpens our sense of the separation, the separation between deeds and the town that he's Mm -hmm. being pulled away from. I don't know if that's plausible or not, but that was maybe an artifact of my functional approach. It's tough. I mean, just this whole question of intentionality, right? I mean, it was it might have not been intentional that they shot it that way, but to a certain degree, it's intentional to leave it in. Although I suspect knowing Ford, that was maybe the only take they got. Yeah. You know, who knows? You know, it's I've actually recently I've been lucky enough to shoot some period pieces where we've been trying to emulate like, you know, older styles of filmmaking. And if I have one regret, it's not leaving in more mistakes (laughs) (laughs) because there's nothing that says contemporary cinema like scrubbed of anything. So this is kind of a tangent. We can spend as little or as much time as we want on it. And I don't want to take up too much of your time. But your book ends on Touch of Evil. But before that, it ends on a subject near and dear to my heart, which is the transition to widescreen and all the effects of that. I keep a list on Letterboxd called Why Is This in Scope? It just films that shouldn't be in Cinemascope, but are. Brigadoon is on that list, which it's always bugged me, that film. So you kind of touch upon this in the book, but I'd love to hear about, not necessarily about strictly movement, but your take on the way directors and cinematographers maybe embraced or struggled with, especially the really weird formats like Cinemascope and Cinerama. Cinerama is my favorite carnival thing. Right? Like it's How the West Was One is one of my favorite grotesqueries in Hollywood history. It's so odd. In terms of the actual deployment of widescreen, how did that pan out for cinematographers? Well, I'll preface this by saying that I don't think of myself as a widescreen expert. So there's only a you know relatively small portion on widescreen in the book. I do think of myself as a bit of a widescreen fan. I've been known to champion the virtues of black and white scope movies, which I just think I've seen so many films, not just in Hollywood, but around the world that use black and white scope so effectively. But Probably the first thing that comes to mind when I think about the research that I was doing just to prepare that section on widescreen, I remember being just surprised at how Daryl Zanuck at Fox was certainly championing CinemaScope to the point that he almost seemed willing to like throw away everything else in cinematic style. Yeah, he almost saw it as like the end of editing. Yeah, he was like, isn't this great that we can basically turn movies into theater so that you know everything will just be in like long shot, I guess, and we'll just perform a two or three minute scene in one take. And 
it seemed like he wanted to save money, but it also seemed like, have you forgotten everything about cinema <laughs> that you've ever learned? It just seemed like such a bizarre thing for him to say that we want the cinema just to be theater now. And fortunately, I don't think he got what he wanted if that's what he wanted. No. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, I think filmmakers were able to do more dynamic and interesting things with widescreen than Zanuck himself had in mind. It's interesting because the way a lot of people speak of the transition to sound is how I often find myself speaking of the transition to scope, where for me, the mid 50s are so interesting because clothesline framing, that kind of really wrote x-axis arrangement of all the mise-en-scene i struggle with i really struggle with it then you have like i mean filmmakers like weiler and robert wise finally pushing the kind of foreground background i mean the big country was a revelation for me pushing that foreground background contrast which i think is one of the great things about scope i think some historians will say that you know because there's less depth of field with scope and then you're probably working in color which maybe has less depth of field than black and white did at the time some historians will say that that sort of led to an emphasis on the clothesline framing. They just didn't have mm -hmm. the depth. I'm never fully convinced by that. Certainly, if you're shooting outside, it would seem to me that you can get enough light on there that you can get depth of field. Oh, yeah. Weiler did it constantly, like in Ben-Hur and um, the big country. He just, you have the shots of Charlton Heston in the extreme foreground and his lackeys in the background. They're all sharp. It's great. And that's 1958. So to the extent that they had problems, they seem to have solved those problems relatively quickly. And I'm not even sure they had big problems early on. I just think of The Man from Laramie. That's widescreen. Mm -hmm. What is it, 55, I think? And there again, it's color. A lot of it is outside. But I think of that as having a lot of depth of field. There's early ones. Long Gray Line is 55 too, I believe. And that has beautiful scope. Or Star is Born by Cooker. Yeah, 54. That's quite good, 54, yeah. It does seem maybe there were some filmmakers who figured out what to do with it pretty quickly. And clearly some filmmakers, probably not as well. I mean, Minnelli is a filmmaker who I think he eventually got the hang of it, but I just kind of look at like the bandwagon and then Brigadoon and I'm just go, oh, if only this wasn't imposed from the top. Mm -hmm. Ironically, I mean, my favorite scope director ever, never shot in scope, Leone, he shot two per spherical. And one thing about scope is we're really talking about two things. We're talking about kind of the colloquial term, which is the two, three, nine to one frame and also just the cinema scope process, the anamorphic squeeze. There's a bit of a distinction there. Mm -hmm. That's a fascinating time. And in the book, you kind of tied that into the movement of the time and just Zanuck's wacky ideas for never having to shoot a film that looks interesting again. Yeah. I'm so happy that future didn't end up happening. But yeah, we get things like Bonjour Tristesse, which I think is terrific. That's scope. That's like officially scope. I mean, I remember it's still having like there's a bit of mumps in there. The yeah. scope mumps in there. But it goes to show it's not really an issue when you're as good as framing as Preminger is. No, he's exceptionally good at framing. Yeah. And I think there are some wonderful, wonderful movements in Bonjour Tristesse as well. Mm -hmm. We just watched Breathless. I'm teaching a class in post-war arts and we just watched Breathless. The Richard Gere one, I'm guessing? No, no, no. no. <laughs> but I was just appreciating Gene Seberg in Breathless. You know, every time you watch a movie over again, sometimes there's something you focus on. I was just focusing on what she was doing <laughs> this time around. It's interesting how, I mean, this whole project has been an interesting process of kind of familiarizing myself with, especially performers that I didn't know. I mean, I've watched all of Lubitsch's Berlin stuff twice now because this podcast, because you got to do your homework. The second time through is so much more rewarding because it's like, oh, I love this act. I love everyone except Harry Leadkey. I love him. I, he's funny sometimes. But just going, wow, attuning yourself to what all these artists are doing gradually or like, you know, Kurt Richter and his production design or Theodore Sparkle and his incredible kind of typical Berlin lighting and 
brilliant framing of the time. It's slowly attuning yourself to what each artist is bringing is really rewarding. I'm thinking of the character actor, Felix Brassard. Oh, he's my favorite. If I had to have an MVP in Lubitsch's career, he's it. His monologue in To Be or Not To Be is maybe my favorite scene in history. I think he's a good candidate for MVP. I mean, there's a few. I mean, also Edward Everett Horton, the perpetual stooge. There's so many great characters. But I feel like we've talked the whole time and I haven't mentioned Victor Milner's name. And I feel like I should mention Victor Milner just as Lubitsch's cinematographer, who was also another one of these cinematographers who was a theorist. You know, Victor Milner wrote several articles for American Cinematographer, and I think he really wanted to position himself as being the ASC's like leading thinker. And so he took strong positions on camera movement, where he was one of the cinematographers criticizing some filmmakers for overusing camera movement, though not Lubitsch. He praised Lubitsch in this respect. And he was consistently a theorist of lighting. And I attribute to him a lot of the ASC's thinking about how lighting needs to be guided by the mood of the story. So I just didn't want to leave without mentioning Victor Milner's contribution. Thank you so much for joining us, Patrick. This has been an absolute pleasure. And I'm sure our listeners will initially approach this episode of why on earth is Devin doing another cinematography episode in this podcast about this German director. Within five minutes, I'm sure they'll understand the wisdom of that decision. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been lovely. All right. Thank you for having me. It has been lovely. Next week, Jennifer Flieger joins us to discuss The Love Parade. Head over to ErnstCast.com for information as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. Griffin Scheel was our dialogue editor for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you happen to use. It helps other people find our podcast and therefore find Ernst Lubitsch. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. 